This is episode 201 of the Stem Cell Podcast, The Future of Research with Drs. Laili Rohani, Rhea Macklin, and Matthew Sinti. Hey, everybody. We are Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today, we have a special episode featuring the life force of scientific discovery, postdocs. We'll be talking to three postdoctoral fellows from around the world about what they're working on and advice for those entering academia. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, and much love to the postdocs, stem cell is hiring. Stem Cell Technologies is a world leader in developing services and tools for scientists working in cell biology, regenerative medicine, immunology, cancer, and disease research. United by a foundation of scientific integrity and driven by a mission to advance science globally, Stem Cell is a team of scientists helping scientists. They're looking for creative, driven people to join their international team, explore more than 70 current offerings in areas such as R&D, sales, business operations, and quality, all at jobs.stemcell.com. All right, Arun, I'm actually going to kick off the uh, roundup today with like a little bit of a twin story, mostly because I tried to get into this. You know, I love vessels, right? And we're going to talk about some vessels with these postdocs on this episode. I like vessels and I saw the title of this micro vessels supporting graphene and functionality, blah, 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 human eye. That's great. So I was all over it. I went in to get it for the first time. It's weird. My academic access, I can't even get the PDF for it. So I'm just going to give you the highlight that I got from the abstract. Bottom line, pretty basic. It's a story from a Nunez lab. Um, who is at uh, Toronto uh, General Hospital Research Institute. And uh, the bottom line is pretty basic, but I think uh, right up my alley, in my wheelhouse, and I love these kinds of stories, just showing that vessels help, endothelial cells help. They took uh, adipose tissue-derived vessels and they co-transplanted with either ES-derived, human ES-derived uh, pancreatic beta cells or uh, human islets, and it worked. Uh, they either accelerated the the recession of um, diabetes, reversal of diabetes, um, and they enabled reversal with a subtherapeutic dose of what you usually need with actual human islets. Um, and in those human islets, they replenished the native vasculature. And I just like this because I've always thought that anytime you're doing any kind of transplant, um, that endothelial cells are 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 going to be helpful because they accelerate the uh, reperfusion, you know, and the tissues, they need blood, they need the vessels. So I think that's a cool story. I can't wait to actually read it when they give me the access. But the actual story that I went into was about um, ductal NGN3, neurogenin3 expressing progenitors. Uh, and this is about a, adult beta cell neogenesis, right? Um, so yeah, of course, we know what we're talking about here, diabetes, uh, type one, type two, it's about beta cell loss, one in 10, pretty much one in 11 people are diabetic. Did you know that? That's insane. It's um, a lot. So there's a big need to understand not only making cells and regenerative elements and all that, but just really how the beta cell population is maintained. And better yet, if there's this neogenesis in adults, and let's, let's tap that as well as using, you know, pluripotent cells as a, as a resource. Um, so while it's thought mainly to be maintained the beta cell population by proliferation, 
there's been stories, you know, over a decade now has been showing that there is adult beta neogenesis from non beta cell sources in the context of injury of the mouse pancreas. Um, and it's thought to be governed largely by expression of this NGN3, which is a key transcription factor that's expressed during pancreatic development um, in beta cells and precursors. But it's also strongly implicated, as you might imagine, in adult beta cell neogenesis. They're kind of going back, going back to basics, going back to that embryonic program. And it's thought that ductal cells uh, are, are, are the source of these neurogenin three cells. However, there's been all kinds of lineage tracing using Cree and different kinds of tracers. Um, and looking at the ability of ductal cells to contribute to beta cell neogenesis and homeostasis in the context of injury. And they're all, they have competing evidence for both um, cases, either they're not, and, or they are. And, and it's probably because, you know, these Cree drivers, they're tremendously diverse. They're not necessarily expressed in all cells or the recombination efficiency is not great, or the duration that the labels are expressed or how long they're followed is, is variable. So it's not surprising that you have these um, competing theories. But uh, here, uh, the idea was to just go Rambo on it. Um, this is a work from Rocio Sancho and Axel Behrens, who are both at the, the Forensic Crick Institute. And they use these really complex super drivers, which I don't know about. I can't even understand. They're so intense and awesome. But they result in pretty much complete labeling of ductal cells. And then they combine that super labeling scheme with 3D imaging um, to show effectively that, there, that these NGN3 cells exist uh, amongst the ductal cells. And they co-express these other uh, progenitor as well as... Um, beta cell markers and they use single cell RNA-seq and pretty much map the trajectory whereby these uh, neurogenin-3 positive progenitors within the ductal population um, give rise to these insulin positive beta cells. So I think this is maybe, you know, I'm sure there's still going to be some arguing. People love to argue, particularly scientists, particularly in the, in the world of pancreatic beta. But um, I think this is a pretty hardcore demonstration that these ductal NGN3 positive cells actually exist, and they do contribute uh, to the maintenance of beta cell populations, at least in mouse. And uh, I'll be interested to see um, whether we can leverage this uh, in, in humans, right? Because everybody's got a pancreas, even if it's all run down and worn out, maybe we can get some neogenesis from those ductal cells instead of going to a pluripotent stem cell source. Yeah, a couple of good papers in the pancreatic field. You're right. I mean, the next inevitable step is to see if some of these findings are translatable to humans. And one little note here, although they did show that those NGN3 positive ductal progenitors can be a source for adult beta cell neogenesis, they only looked at those mice up to about eight months, right? So you got to look beyond that. So you got to see and you got to see how that neogenesis, beta cell neogenesis is actually changing with age. So I think there's definitely more work that needs to be done there. But I will say that the pancreatic field and the, the beta cell and diabetes field is really, you know, so tremendously uh, powerful these days. There's a huge number of applications in stem cell biology that are coming out of this field. Clinical translational applications, we talked about semi-therapeutics. I think they actually got acquired by Vertex something. So a lot of these basic science discoveries that are actually being translated into the clinic in terms of, you know, the, the most basic way is uh, generating better islets from stem cell derived 
populations and actually transplanting those into people so that you can generate insulin and really treat diabetes in that way. So in addition to the amazing basic science that's being highlighted by papers such as these, there is a, a feasible and actual translation that's actually happening in this field. So that's why I'm really excited about this work. Yes, I think, I mean, I'm scarred, no pun intended, a little bit by the early uh, promising idea of applying the beta cells in these kind of modules, these patches, right? Because that was the whole idea is that you don't even need to replace the organ. You could do this kind of modular approach, same idea with liver. But um, early, early studies showed that there was a little bit of an immune barrier, even in, in not skin. Well, they ended up having to do it always, even though it was uh, autologous in these NSG mice. And I think just because of the inflammatory influence of that foreign body, even though you don't um, have an active T cell response, that that inflammation can undermine the efficacy of these kind of patches or, or whatever, the, the things that are inserted with a, a bolus of, of little pancreatic islet organoids there. So I, I wouldn't be surprised here seeing these kind of studies if it kind of makes an end run around pluripotent cells and we're just tapping the adult source, although with the caveat, as you mentioned, that we have to see how these things do in the age population, because, you know, notwithstanding the type one, uh, a lot of these diabetics, you know, the one in 11 um, is amongst the aging population. So, yes, it, it, we'll, we'll have to see. But I'm really excited and I love the idea. No shade on pluripotency, but I love the idea in terms of just pragmatism and practicality of using adult cells. Yeah, absolutely. An unmet medical need for sure. And moving from that translational set of stories to something a bit more basic, we're going to go back here and talk about the plumeria, which is a favorite model system of many developmental biologists because of its incredible regenerative capacity. So there's a paper here coming from the lab of Alejandro Sanchez Alvarado over there, I believe at the, uh, uh, in, uh, where is it? Kansas City, Missouri at the Stowers Institute. That's right. Uh, very powerful, very exciting research institute over there in the Midwest in Kansas City. They're doing tremendous work. And the first author here is actually Blair Benham-Pyle, who is a co-graduate uh, student of mine from back in my time at Stanford. She was in the cancer biology program. She moved on to do her postdoc at the Stowers Institute. And she's been focusing on the planaria identification of rare transient post-mitotic cell states that are induced by injury and required by whole body, required for whole body regeneration in Schmidia, Mediterranean, that's the planaria. And this is coming out in Nature Cell Biology. And why are we so interested in the planaria as a model system? Well, I mean, they, like many lower invertebrates and some vertebrates have a tremendous capacity to regenerate. And in particular, this flatworm can regrow the entire animal from just a very tiny fragment of the animal. And they've actually mapped it down to, you can go from as little as one to 79th of the animal and regrow the entire worm. So that's pretty exciting. And the question is, how does it actually happen and what cell types are contributing to that amazing regenerative capacity, right? So there's stem cells, which are obviously really important. And we all love here on the show, but there's a bunch of other cell types that are critical to the process as well. So what they did here um, was do a lot of single cell analyses in particular, analyzing about 300,000 cells in the regenerating worm 
to really talk about the, the different populations of cells that are critical to their regenerative process in the planaria. So they we already knew they already knew that the uh, the wound induced epidermis and the wound induced muscle is actually playing a really important role in the regeneration in these worms. But they wanted to understand what other cell populations are so critical, and they actually found that all of the different germ layers in the worm, that's the muscle, the epidermis, and even the intestine, uh, all respond, all of them respond to the amputation, even if you cut them down to these really tiny fragments, right? And that it's both the tissues near the wound site and actually really far away from the wound site that are actually contributing to the regenerative capacity. So it's a little bit counterintuitive, right? You would think that it's the cells that are right next to that cut site that are doing most of the work, but they're actually finding here that, yeah, there's cells way far away in these other populations that are actually also contributing to the regenerative capacity. And uh, they looked at a bunch of different cell types from all three germ layers, and they a number of them, even the ones that are really far away from the cut site, altered their transcriptional output after being amputated. And after genes enriched in these cell types were actually knocked down, they found that they all contributed to regeneration in different ways and actually activated at different times during the regenerative process. So, and the, the final thing that I'll point here is that it's the, the intestine apparently had the strongest regenerative capacity of those three germ layers, the, the muscle, the epidermis, and the intestinal populations. It's the intestine that, you know, is able to regenerate first and regenerate best. And it kind of makes sense because you want to regrow the portion of the body that's actually responsive for food digestion and generate, getting nutrients back and this sort of thing. So maybe that's partly why the intestine is so amenable to regeneration in these flatworms. So, so very basic study, but, you know, it's, uh, again, using single cell technology and the, the context of looking at regeneration in a really amazing model system that we've uh, we've been talking about a little bit on the show in the past. We got to show our love to the model systems, of course. We've talked about zebrafish with Dr. Ken Poss. We're talking about planaria here. And maybe we're going to talk about the, the axolotl in the future. Who knows? I think there's a whole range of amazing model systems that can be used to study regeneration that, uh, that we can discuss here on the show. Man, you've done the uh, axolotl. Don't, don't, don't slip. You, you've oh, been yeah. there. You just do it all. You love these model <laughs> systems and I love you for it. And I had to be honest, you know, the, the cynic in me is like, oh, please, planaria, right? But like, it, it's true. It's the most fundamentally robust regenerative process that you can imagine. And if I think of it, I'm like, wow, you know, is it even feasible that there could be a, a cell in the human body that has similar potential or populations of cells that are, you know, totally potent, whatever? The reality is, it doesn't matter. Uh, what's important here, is that this process exists at all. The idea that biology is capable of this, I think it allows you to kind of open your chromatin, so to speak, and think about the, the potential that's, that's present in each cell, um, in each organ, and just to think differently. So, you know, I love these concept stories, and I think this is one of them. This is just, you know, it changes the way you think about things. Although the numbers are a little bit kooky. I mean, 299,998, they couldn't do two more cells? Come on! Yeah, I was thinking about that. What, what happened to those last two cells? Maybe I can ask Blair about that. But no, you're right. It's uh, We talk about regeneration a lot on the show, but the reason I like planaria in particular is because it's not just regeneration, it's extreme regeneration. Think about it. You cut down an animal to one three hundredth of its original size and it can grow back 
to full capacity in just a matter of days, right? We talk about the zebrafish heart and you can cut off a portion of it, but it's not like you can cut the zebrafish in half and it's gonna completely grow back. So it just reflects the power of the regenerative capacity that we can find in nature, right? It's beautiful. It is beautiful. I wouldn't mess with planaria. They'll come back at you hard. <laughs> um, but, you know, talking about regeneration in a more practical way, I think uh, I'm going to pivot here to a science translational story that really is kind of like right around the corner in terms of application. Um, and this is it's ubiquitous osteoarthritis, right? Uh, we don't maybe all know about it yet, but we all know somebody who experiences it and we're all kind of destined for it. I'm already feeling it. Um, it's a huge, millions of people worldwide affected by it. And seriously, you know, reducing their mobility and their quality of life, uh, particularly in, in elder, elderly patients, but also younger individuals like myself. I still count myself as not elderly. Um, I have a little bit of early stage osteoarthritis because of, you know, joint injuries. I've had bad in ankle injuries and I feel it, you know, and uh, my elbows, for instance. But there's also genetic predisposition. Um, or any kind of, you know, mechanical stress overload, obesity, you're going to see a lot more osteoarthritis moving forward with our uh, chronically obese population. So it's a major unmet need. Um, and it's really about uh, cartilage inflammation, right? And alter alterations in the articular cartilage um, that affects the cartilage bone interface leading to joint degradation and Current therapies are, they fall really short. You know, it's pretty much use anti-inflammatories until you just can't stand it anymore. And then you get joint replacement. You know, that's pretty extreme to go from soft pharma to like joint replacement. Um, so you would hope that there'd be an intermediary there. Uh, and maybe the, the path there is to hone in more on not just Inflam inflammation, inflammatory processes, which is, I guess, what the pharmacological approach is, but actually what's creating the inflammation. And that's the cells, right? It, it, inflammation, um, it's it, the major driver of uh, progression of osteoarthritis. Um, and it's cytokines like IL-1 IL beta, IL-6, IL-8, TNF-alpha, that are all generated um, by these chondrocytes, right? And a lot of times it's because if you, there are transplants, uh, the idea is that you can transplant articular chondrocytes um, into joints and that's been tried. But what happens with that, the outcomes are really mixed because those articular chondrocytes aren't really suited to the engraftment. And sometimes they spit out a lot of these inflammatory molecules because they come from a place where they're already, you know, inflammatory. Um, so enter nasal chondrocytes, right? I mean, who would have thought? This is Andrea Barbaro and uh, Carolina Peltari. They are at the University of Basel in Switzerland. And their approach, which isn't brand new, they tried this before uh, at a lesser scale, but the idea is to use nasal chondrocytes, right? Which, you know, from the nose, you can get those minimal donor site morbidity. In fact, people will be psyched. Some people are like, take some of my chondrocytes, you know, and these plastics, they, they got a lot of the chondrocytes hanging around. Um, and, you know, the thing is, is usually the chondrocytes are healthy. Even if you have osteoarthritis, they're not coming from an articular joint or from articular chondrocytes that are already banged up, right? So uh, they're, they're in the, the right profile, um, no pathology, and also they're highly reproducible uh, or highly uh, reproductive. They proliferate a lot and have a lot of cartilage forming capacity, more so than articular chondrocytes, right? So they, they had previously done this. Um, Barbara and Peltari, they previously shown that they can transplant this uh, and, and get 
the nasal chondrocytes adapt to this other environments and, and they can show positive um, influence. But here they took it to the next level. Uh, they generated these um, autologous nasal, nasal tissue engineered cartilage grafts from the nasal chondrocytes and they tested them in actual osteoarthritic joints um, and showed that those nasal chondrocyte tissue engineered constructs maintain their cartilaginous pro properties. Um, also in vitro, before they transplanted them, uh, they didn't get warped. Um, they maintain their non-inflammatory profile. And uh, the mechanistically, they showed that it was mediated by downregulation of Wnt um, through this secreted fr uh, frizzled related protein. Um, and then this is the key, they transplanted first into mouse models and ectopic tissue show that the, the, the constructs survive and they engraft um, in, in a model that reproduces that osteoarthritic tissue environment. And then they went in sheep, um, which was the next level uh, and show that they work there as well. And then finally with the big science translational hit, they um, tested it in two patients that had advanced osteoarthritis, really for safety, they were testing these. And they showed that there were not only no adverse reactions, but these patients also reported reduced pain, improved joint function at uh, 14 months after surgery and key here, improved quality of life. So this is the justification ar argued by the authors to really take these non-nasal chondrocytes into a big time trial and I mean, that, that would be a big, big trial and a, and a bombshell application. You know, we talk about mesenchymal stem cells from, you know, years of, of, of years past. I feel like this is exactly what we had always hoped for. Yeah, a huge unmet medical need here is, you know, we were talking about diabetes before and we're talking about osteoarthritis here. You know, this is something that a lot of folks who are aging are going through. I really love this story because it goes from basic, from mouse model to sheep model, all the way to the, the human patients, right? And uh, part of the reason I like it is because to me, it seems very straightforward, right? You're taking a cell population that's readily available in another part of the body, expanding it, and then transplanting it into a portion of the body that needs it. The question I have for any of these autologous therapies is time. You know, I don't know if that's something they actually addressed here. How long does it actually take to go from isolating those nasal chondrocytes, expanding them enough, and then putting them back into the body? Because that's sort of the limitation with iPSCs, autologous iPSC therapy as well, right? The time that you need to actually generate a patient's own cells and then use them for that patient's own treatment. Is that something they, they addressed here? Uh, I don't think that the, the timeline is, is in the paper. I may have missed it, but I, I will say that in, in this case, it's kind of the best case for that though, right? I mean, this isn't uh, emergent need there in these patients. They're in pain and they suffer with the anti-inflammatories for a little while longer in advance of having a joint replacement and then they get their cells. I, I do though agree with you less so about the time it takes because I, I don't think that's as much of a problem in terms of the patient need and their timeline, as much as like that time in vitro is a lot of cell divisions. And I have this real, just my intuition, I have an intuitive fear of the, just the notion of expanding something ex vivo and putting it back in. I think that there's a lot of potential for emergence of kind of these, you know, 
clonal variants that may have pathological uh, potential. So I, I think that the bar is going to be high on safety. Here we had two patients with no adverse reactions, but I mean, these were pretty advanced stage, uh, no controls here in this case. So I think there's a lot of work to be done, but I'm just excited about the idea again, about tapping an adult cell source that's right there. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of patients out there that are dying while we're trying to get pluripotent stem cells, while dying of pain in their knees, but also dying of diabetes while we're trying to get pluripotent stem cells into practice. Not that we're doing anything wrong. It's just, hey, let's get all the arrows in the quiver, right, Arun? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, of course, we are biased towards pluripotent stem cells since we are stem cell biologists, but you can't deny the power of adult populations as well. And I think the initial and perhaps some of the most powerful clinical trials, like what we've shown here, are going to be using those populations where you don't have to worry about the whole reprogramming process and all that. So, so don't hate on the non-pluripotent populations, right? Moving on to the last paper from the roundup. This is something way out there, very different. But this is, I had to talk about this because this is just a lot of fun. And it's a, it's a really hot field right now, the idea of generating meat. That's right, meat, edible meat and other food products in vitro, completely free from slaughtering animals and this sort of thing. And of course, there's an ethical advantage to this as, as well, but also an environmental advantage to growing meat products in vitro and uh, mass producing them that way. So I will say this in the context of, uh, you know, saying that I'm probably not supposed to have beef. You know, I'm just saying I was raised as a Hindu, but occasionally I've had a burger here and there. And when I was in Osaka, Japan, not too long ago, I had to try something called Wagyu beef. All right. I've heard a lot about Wagyu beef. I heard it's the tastiest type of beef. I really hope my parents aren't listening to the podcast today, but I've tried a little bit of Wagyu beef and it was really, really tasty. And what they've done here, folks from Osaka University in Japan actually use stem cells isolated from Wagyu cows to generate a 3D printed meat alternative that contains muscle fat and blood vessels arranged to really closely resemble those steak properties. Um, why Wagyu beef? Because apparently this is the grandest of the grand of when it comes to beef products and types of steaks. They are really tasty. They're a bit expensive, sure, but you can't deny the taste. And even in my limited tasting, I was able to appreciate that. So 3D printed Wagyu beef is kind of the, the approach here. And it's tough to actually replicate the structure in vitro because it has this really unique thing that they call, actually, they, they mentioned it here in the paper. It's called sashi marbling. It's this mix between intramuscular fat and the appropriate content of muscle fibers and the, the vessels. They have to get these concentrations of these the proportions just right to get that really tasty texture. Okay. And what they did here was they used 3D printing to uh, combine the appropriate amount of muscle fibers, fat, and blood vessels uh, to create a simulated Wagyu beef. I will say all this with the caveat that uh, I don't think they've tasted their meat. I don't think they tasted the thing that they created. So in, in, in a sense, is it really Wagyu beef? Is it because it comes down to the taste, right? It's got to replicate that delicious taste of the meat. I don't think that's something they actually addressed here, but I'm sure that's what you have to do down the road, right? Um, so yeah, combining different types of cells 
They arrange them in 3D, trying to reproduce the structure of real wagyu meat, which is actually sliced in a particular way uh, that the, the Japanese butchers have been able to slice it over the years. And um, yeah, I, I, I just, <laughs> not much else to it. I and mean, you can take a look at the paper there. It's a very technical bioengineering, bioprinting paper and not my expertise per se. The reason it's a stem cell paper is because they actually use adipose derived stem cells to generate some of their, their fat content in the, the chunk of meat. But you got to do the taste test, right? Dylan, how, how else can you know if it's the real thing? I'm willing. I'll take some of the Wagyu. I, I think um, uh, the faux Wagyu, whatever you want to call it. The, the one thing I say, Arun, this is your thing, man. This is Hindu Wagyu because, you know, the, it's all about <laughs> the cow is a holy animal. But if there's no, yeah. the cow can be there and the Wagyu's printed and it's all good. Um, I think that, you know, looking at it, as you said, the Sashi or whatever, the, the, the way they do it is like laying down these like lines, like pipeline, like to threads, essentially, that mimic the that kind of the muscle cords or whatever. And then the fat it's, it's, yeah, it's like a, a, a engineering story, building the Wagyu beef uh, because of that. And the complexity of making it, I, um, I wonder about the scale and the cost and they didn't yeah. really mention the cost, not, not to mention, they didn't mention the taste. There was a lot of things they didn't mention, but I will say this, you know, we had Mark post. So Mark post famously made the, the first, you know, burger made out of cell culture meat. And that first burger that was big in the news, it was $300,000 to make. And then we had him on the podcast, you know, a hundred or so episodes ago. And at that point, this is maybe four years ago, he had gotten the price down to, to, you know, much less like a hundred dollars or something. And here we are now, everybody's eating these meat substitutes. So I, I, I am skeptical maybe of, of this, whether they'll scale this up, but of course it's going to end up working out. Just give it time. I think that these, uh, meat kind of sub i wouldn't even call them substitutes meat uh you know approximations are mm -hmm. um are really the future of food whether i like it or not oh it's taking off like crazy exponential growth in this field for sure independent of whether it's going to be a 3d printing based approach i i doubt it because that incorporates a cost element into it. Um, this field is poised for explosion. So you may not have entire chunks of Wagyu beef in the future, but you may have, I don't know, Wagyu flakes that you'll build on in, over the next 10 years, chicken nuggets that you made entirely in vitro. These are all things that are happening. They're not just brainstorming stuff that's coming out of my head. You can look it up. This is all stuff that's in the works. But as for the Hindu Wagyu beef, I'll have to double check with my parent, my parents about that one. <laughs> you got a green light, homie. You know, one of these days we're going to hit up Arby's and it's going to be, we have the Wagyu. Um, maybe not. Maybe not. Price might be a little bit high for me, but we'll have to talk with the trainees, postdocs about that. And let's get to it. But first, I have a message from Stem Cell Technologies Looking to stay current with the latest research and news in the fields of immunology and cell biology, we'd like to remind our listeners to check out Stem Cell Science News, featuring the most recent top peer-reviewed research and review papers, as well as industry, policy, and science news. Stem Cell Science News provides a platform that allows researchers to stay up to date with their field while saving time. Subscribe for free at stemcellsciencenews.com. All right, everybody, we have with us now one of our early career innovators, Dr. Laylee Rohani. 
She's a postdoc at the University of British Columbia Center for Heart and Lung Innovation. Lailies is a specialist in stem cells reprogramming and disease modeling using iPSCs. Her current research involves digging into human heart cells at the molecular level to determine how diseased cells regulate gene expression, which cells are disrupted in disease progression, and how potential therapies might impact their function. Laylee, welcome to the show. Thank you. And thank you both for having me here. And um, I really appreciate um, Stem Cell Podcast team uh, to uh, providing opportunity for uh, trainees uh, communicating their research. I'm super excited to be here. I've been following you guys since 2017. So it's really an honor for me to be here. And um, I'm happy to talk about my research, my very interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary research. All right, well, we're happy to have you. It's a real pleasure. And let's just, you know, cut right to the chase. We're gonna start at the end. Uh, what for you is your like long-term big picture career goal? When you look back 20 years from now, what would you, what do you think will have been your, your major contribution or the imprimatur of your, of your uh, scientific contribution? Um, cell therapy using um, stem cell derived heart cells. So I would like to go back after uh, 20 years and see that um, I'm transplanting uh, uh, IPS derived uh, heart cells and then uh, the patient is going to be cured in a few months. So that's really my passion. So I, I hope I can do that in a few years and I guess we're close to that. So it's not far from, but uh, I mean, that's my, my passion and my goal and uh, to use stem cell because um, I come from the world of stem cell and cell therapy, regenerative medicine. So uh, it's been my passion since I started working on these type of cells. And I hope in, a two, in 20 years, I go back and I see I've done this. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a lofty goal, but it's something that a lot of folks in the field are striving for. So in terms of, you know, making these cells, if we want to actually use them for clinical therapy, we have to mass produce them in a way that they can be utilized, right? So you actually have done some bioreactor based work. And recently in collaboration with bioengineers at University of Calgary, and actually some support from the stem cell network in Canada, you published an article talking about some of this enhanced manufacturing of pluripotent stem cell derived products and pluripotent stem cells in particular and cells in the naive state. So you've shown that, you know, this could be an important tool for enhancing naive potency and perhaps the bioreactors mechanical environment is really critical for that, right? So if the naive state is something that's easily achieved, this is kind of a broad question. If it's something that you can achieve using this bioreactor state, is this something that every stem cell biologist who's doing stem cell culture should be focused on this naive state. Should I start shifting my work onto the naive state as well? So tell us more about this kind of bioreactor work that you've done. Yeah, absolutely. I would suggest you sh shift your research to be bioprocess bioengineer. That's how I became like a... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we always joke um, with my very own collaborator, my smart collaborator, Dr. Greg Toms, um, that... Uh, like how uh, I became bioengineer, bioprocessing, and the niche microenvironment was very helpful in that because I uh, we work in totally different uh, group. But I mean, being in the same office ended up having this very successful project. And then yes, uh, bioprocess engineering absolutely is, is really a major and critical step 
to transfer uh, the iPS derived cells and desired cell type to the clinic. So, uh, so it's it's really something that is uh, required. Not only naive states in general bioprocess engineering, and that's how uh, like we started this project with. Uh, like we had some other different codes, like how we uh, started with this naive pluripotent same bioreactor and then make it a uh, more more um, uh, like uh, like scalable um, to be applicable for clinic and then for uh, patients and also for even for industrial. Like because nowadays, uh, like most of the translational research, which is something I'm very interested in, uh, come from uh, like. Uh, biotech or uh, companies uh, so it's, uh, it's, it's really an interdisciplinary but many of them come from companies so it's, it is something also necessary for them uh, to scale uh, production of all of these cell types but I mean the main idea that we wanted to do this work that ended up having our other work like liver organoid was uh, uh, sulfate engineering like how change the dynamic of cells and then the cell system to uh, behave in a different way. So it's a kind of combination of uh, reprogramming and then cell system and then uh, bioprocess engineering and then how tuning uh, help to have specific cell types. Because right now, uh, many of the companies like we have here, for example, in Canada, CCRM is very known for, uh, for uh, like translational research and then uh, from um, bench to decide, uh, but uh, the main problem is the desire, having the desired subtype there. And then the first step, and the second step, having the desired subtype in a scalable uh, manner. And that is something I guess is a barrier at the moment for the cell-based therapy. And that's, that's something that we wanted to uh, overcome uh, by having this bioprocess engineering combination of uh, bioreactor and then um, also uh, like, I don't know uh, how you guys are familiar with bio, uh, design of experiments, the kind of bioprocess engineering, They're having several factors uh, simultaneously added to, uh, to the culture and to do forward engineering to have a specific cell type. And that's how we ended up having like, for example, naive cells, and then having uh, like other cell types in liver, uh, like bipotent uh, cell types in liver, FCAM positive, which are responsive to drugs. So it's not only cell therapy, it's also a platform, a screening platform for drugs. So it's really like multidisciplinary, like what I say, I have a mixture of, like I'm, my research is a mixture of everything because uh, I have been exposed to, to several teams, different path perspectives, uh, clinician scientists, bioprocess engineer. So uh, all of this made me to combine all this work together. And then after that, come here to Center for Heart and Lung Innovation, tying all of this together. If you want me to talk about that, I can talk. But I'm waiting for the next question. I guess I talked for a, a bit long, right? I'm sorry. No, no let's, uh, <laughs> let's elaborate. I love it. Um, so yeah, I mean, you talk about your your multidisciplinary interests, and you know, you've been you've been around, and you've been in many different fields. Now you're at the heart and lung. You work with liver organized, and clearly, I think what what it seems to me is that you're trying to figure out processes that can be applied across the board, right? And you said it a prerequisite to industrial application, commercial um, applications of stem cells, regenerative therapeutic applications, is is scale, um, and you know. Uh, bioreactors are the key to that. And you see that also, there's a lot of 
uh, stuff entering the market and the commercial side of things like bioprinted meats and stuff and fish. And, and I know they just made this Wagyu steak that was bioprinted. It probably costs, you know, more than the $100 a pound. It already costs, probably costs about like 10000 But the point being is that these things, it seems like the scale is getting close. And you've had all this experience across many different, I would say, therapeutic uh, silos. Um, what do you think is, is going to be the first or the most viable uh, translational application based on the scale up uh, enabled by bioreactors? What's like the first therapy or tissue that you think would be a good, uh, a good candidate um, given your innovation and being able to get these cells to scale? Well, I have a bit bias because uh, I come from uh, originally world of cardiac cells, something that Aron is very interested, I'm sure. In. <laughs> uh, but I guess um, cardiac tissue would be the first one. I would like to scale them. And then this is something that we already started here in HLI, like working on engineered heart tissue. And, uh, and beside our scalable product producing them, uh, we're working on communication. I mean, cells are communication as well there, because this is something that how the cell talk to each other. This is something also, I guess it's very important, specifically in a single cell level. And uh, so I try to like here, I mean, again, my niche at HLI and my access to um, like patient tissue, uh, biobank help to um, like combine all of these like scalable uh, production of them first. 3D bioprinting, and then how these cells uh, talk to each other within niche and micro environment, um, and then see how we can find a like a target, um, a specific um, uh, like mechanism in the disease to find a, like making a platform which is scalable, and then cell talk in a proper way and have their own niche and micro environment. Mm -hmm. So these are all I'm thinking to tie together with the current one, like. Having uh, like previous background on uh, bioprocess engineering is scalable, bringing to uh, tissue engineering for heart, and then uh, make the cell uh, in a niche and micro environment. It's quite clear that I'm very interested in this sport, right? Niche. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so uh, put the cells in a niche, a specific niche micro environment so that they communicate and talk to each other in a proper way, because we know that many of the heart diseases. Uh, like, for example, we're working on here, here and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. We know that cells of communication is a critical component there, but the cells, uh, we can't make it easily, for example, in vitro uh, to target them for drug because we cannot replicate the uh, macro environment for the cells so that they talk and communicate with each other in a proper way. So all of this uh, combined together is my passion, but... Um, I know I answer very long to your uh, short question, but yeah, the first tissue that I'm thinking to produce in a scalable manner would be cardiac tissue. I mean, I have passion for that actually. Well, you and I, and a lot of other folks have passions for cardiac tissue. So I think that's the right answer, Dr. Lohan. <laughs> and, and you are indeed a scientist with a bunch of different skill sets, Dr. Rohani, as you've mentioned, you know, you're a cell biologist, you're a stem cell biologist, you've had expertise in different tissue types, 
expertise in biomanufacturing, for example. So all of these are incredible skill sets to have as a stem cell biologist, but you also have one additional skill set that you're something you're very good at, and that's social media. You're actually very <laughs> active on social media, and it's a skill that I think a lot of folks are starting to pick up, not including Daylon. Um, but <laughs> yes, indeed, you are a new generation of stem cell biologists who's very active on social media, Twitter in particular. And we've talked about how even the most unlikely of scientists are starting to pop up on Twitter and other forms of social media as well. So talk about how you actually use social media as a scientist and as an early career investigator to promote your academic interests and how you think trainees in particular can use social media to their advantage? Great question. And my favorite question, actually, my favorite topic. I'm a lover of science communication, actually. And that's why I follow you guys. I have been following you guys since like four years ago, three years ago. But uh, something that I'm very good at is networking. And I guess, um, and that's something I always tell to my friend and other trainees, networking, number one, networking, number two, networking, number three, networking is really important. And I, I, and I really love this uh, new way of uh, communication, science communication through Twitter. And um, actually it's, it's, it's it has been provi it provided me um, a great opportunity to get connected to brilliant um, science around the world and it's really really amazing for me to, to see and I mean when I started uh, I, I just started being active on social media and Twitter like around four years ago something like that and um, it was it was really uh, inspiring and it was really interesting for me how scientists even senior senior scientists were always available and they were always available to answer the a question from junior scientists like myself. So, I mean, uh, I always I, um, became excited that uh, like, oh, like the director of that center really answered me in a very nice way and detailed question that I had. And I still get excited that how they are available and accessible. So, and that's how uh, I guess uh, it's been, it's been, it, it has really a critical role in my, uh, like journey for science, like, I mean, the communication. So before Twitter, I was active on LinkedIn. Nowadays, I'm more active on Twitter, but it has, um, like, it's it, it has really um, a critical, uh, like, effect on the uh, science journey for trainees. And, uh, like, I would say, like what I said, I always tell to trainees, uh, and my friends, uh, like networking, networking, networking. It's just like how I always get answered. Like most of my collaboration, science collaboration comes from Twitter. So I write to them they're all, and, and you'll become uh, surprised at how they are always available. And then you ask them a question, can we collaborate? And they say, yes. I mean, I have never, I have never had no, to be honest with you guys. So they're always yes. And, and it, it depends on how it goes and then how you put effort on that. Uh, it will be successful. For me, it's been always successful, like being communicative and in contact with University of Arizona, like Dr. Jared Turco, our great collaborator, Dr. Sean Wu. You had, you had him, I guess, a while ago in um, Stem Cell Podcast. So we have, like, that's how I started communicating with these guys, only through Twitter and science communication. So I would say it's a critical, uh, important component of science these days. And um, I'm sure for Dylan soon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, need to, 
I he has been successful. He doesn't need, I'm like, yeah, so I, yes, I need so to get in it. But look, I'll tell you, here's my take. Here's my take. As the, <laughs> the last remaining holdout of Twitter as a scientist, I, I have I realized that I missed the boat and I'm totally hosed and I'm, you know, fast on my way to scientific failure. But there's there's one part of me that wonders just because it's I'm just confused by it, because in the real world of science, everyone that I talk to about my science, I offer up an idea and they're not like mean about it, but they're critical. They come after me. I go up, I give up talk. There's at least two people in the room who are like, you're totally wrong. And on Twitter, everybody's so nice and positive. I just don't believe <laughs> it. Is it just like this fantasy like Oz of of science or are there any trolls on Twitter? That's what I want to know. Where are all the science trolls? When I see the science trolls, that's when I'll show up because that's real, Laylee. What do you think? Uh, it is real, of course. <laughs> yes, I, I mean, I, I semi-retract that because it, we do need a, a positive place for scientific discourse. And I guess Twitter uh, is it. And I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm on my way. I'll put it that way. I'm on my way. Maybe I'll get an advocate to, to tweet for me because I just can't be trusted with the key. <laughs> No, science space, I guess um, uh, Twitter is really positive environment to be uh, like, uh, but I mean, there are like recently people started talking about like, uh, like uh, misbehaving by like some PRs and stuff. So this is also part of that, that I have been active, like EDI, for example, people use it a lot for EDI um, these days. Um, mm -hmm. I'm also active on that as well. Uh, but science space is really positive, or at least I was lucky it's been really positive for me so far because it helped me a lot to be success successful because uh, I don't call myself successful, but I mean, like, it's been helpful to me to have success so far. And yeah. it's like, I mean, like, it's all about uh, networking that I did because um, I come from Iran and then I went to Germany for my PhD and then part of my PhD, I went to Austria, then I came to Canada. So, I mean, all of this came by networking. So nothing else could help me more than this, to be honest. And that's why I love it. All right. Well, I'm, I can't say I love it, but I'm getting to liking it. Um, and, you know, I, I'll say about you that you put positive out and you will get positive returns. I think it's more of a, a part of your personality. But let's see. Maybe I'll get some positive returns, too. I know Arun is killing it on Twitter and other platforms. <laughs> But let me uh, press on. Lately, this was such a great chat. You know, you are the future of science and it uh, seems like it's going to be a social future. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready for it, but I, I'm, I'm looking forward at least. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. And we'll have you back, you know, once you have your, uh, your next big paper. Can't wait to hear what you're doing in all those spaces, um, consolidating it uh, for, you know, industrial commercial applications with your scaling. It's very exciting stuff. Thank you so much for the chat. Thank you for uh, having me again uh, here. And it was really fun uh, talking to you guys. All right, you guys, now with us, we have our next young innovator, Dr. Bria Macklin, who is a postdoc in the lab of Dr. Todd McDevitt at the Gladstone Institute's Dr. Macklin's PhD research focused on stem cell-derived vascular cells. She used functional assays to characterize the interactions between different vascular cell types in 3D. Uh, 
how they respond to low oxygen environments and whether they have therapeutic capability in a diabetic retinopathy mouse model. She recently joined Dr. Todd McDevitt's lab. He's a good friend of the show at the Gladstone Institute. It's a very reputable institute. Um, which uses stem cell differentiation and morphogenesis to engineer three-dimensional multicellular systems. Welcome to the show, Bria. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys for having me. Well, it really is our pleasure. Uh, just to start, you know, you've made this big geographic and career move uh, from Sharon Garek's lab at uh, Johns Hopkins to the Gladstone Institute's. What's your kind of big picture end game objective for your research? Um, I would say my big picture end game objective for my research, I, I don't really 100% know yet. I just really know that um, I really enjoy stem cell research and the idea of understanding how we begin as this kind of two to four, six cell you know, organism into an entire human. And so with stem cell research, figuring out, okay, how do we get from there to this? Um, and so, you know, as you said, I've made this big career change, big move. So kind of wherever it takes me is where I'm really interested in going, which I think is the fun part. And that's okay. That's totally yeah. okay. We talked to so many folks who don't know where they want to be 10 years down down the road. I don't necessarily know where I want to be. I don't know about Dalon. I don't think anybody has it totally figured out, right? So that's perfectly okay. But in terms of the work that you have done, you've focused on vascular cells, stem cell derived vascular cells, like Dalon mentioned. And something that Dalon and I know a little bit about, you know, I work mostly in the cardiac tissues and Dalon has a lot of expertise in vascular cells as well. And in particular, you've been looking at the interactions between different vascular cell types in 3D and how they respond to these low oxygen environments and whether they have therapeutic capability, right? So yeah. there's been a lot of work recently and some of it we've actually covered on the show showing the heterogeneity of different endothelial cell types across the body. So in other words, not all ECs endothelial cells are made equal according to a lot of single cell papers that have been coming out recently, right? So how do you incorporate that fact into your bioengineering based approaches? Or does it really not matter what type of ECs or endothelial cells you're making as long as they end up doing their job functionally? So what do you think? I definitely think that it does matter. So I, I will say that I definitely think that it does matter because doing their job is very dependent upon what tissue type they're interacting with. Um, and so I think that that has somewhat kind of inspired my postdoctoral work. So in Todd's, in Todd's lab, um, he's really interested in this idea of co-emergence. So, you know, naturally in the body, tissues emerge together. And so when I kind of was interviewing for postdocs, one of the things that he and I talked about is, could you engineer a system where, and a lot of labs have been trying to do this as well, could you engineer a system where you are able to derive different tissue types, but also derive the endothelial cells that are specific to that tissue type? And how would those um, aid in better functionality of whatever tissue you're looking at? Um, and then what in what ways are those ECs different from ECs that we can just kind of generate from, you know, the kind of the standard mesoderm, VEGF, differentiation protocol. So I definitely have been um, thinking about that as I, you know, move along my career trajectory. Yeah. I mean, another part of that is uh, just the, the plasticity of endothelial cells. Like Arun uh, mentioned, I've dabbled a bit. Um, and for me, the, the, it, it was fascinating, also really kind of daunting 
um, element of ECs from pluripotent cells is that they drift, right? Even if they're primary organ derived, um, unless you can get them from umbilical cord, which for whatever reason, those are stable, huvic, but all primary ECs, they drift, right? Yeah. Um, invariably drifting to a mix of ECs and they're much more proliferative mesenchymal derivatives. Um, of course, that's in 2D. And I know cultured ECs, they can generate long-lived uh, vessels when transplanted in vivo. But I mean, you talked about organ-specific endothelial cells and their specific functions, but a lot of thing that's ubiquitous in the body is fibrosis, right? All organs fundamentally at an advanced stage uh, you start to get uh, fibrotic pathologies. And I don't think people really talk in the pluripotent stem cell space and the vasculoplasty space centered on ES derived uh, and the endothelial vascular cells, at least about that drift enough. What, what's, what's your thought on, on how we are going to either control or manipulate um, EC plasticity to meet our therapeutic endpoints? You know, I I say that I've definitely thought about this, but I don't know what the solution would be in my mind. Like, as you said, it's a very daunting thing when you approach EC, like EC um, research. Um, and I think that a lot of papers have kind of shown, like you said, that vascular drift. But as far as research and trying to address the plasticity of it. Yeah, I'm not I'm not really I don't really have a, have a specific idea. I guess my, my thought has always just been towards, like I said, the organ specific ECs, but that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah. That I haven't really thought about for my individual research. Yeah. I mean, definitely a lot of unanswered questions in the particular field, but you know, we were talking about what you want to be down the road. Right. And I think the ultimate goal for a lot of bioengineers and, and the long-term application of their work is bringing this work to patients, right? Something we've talked a lot about on this show. So bringing stem cell-derived tissues into the clinic for direct use in patient therapy and cell therapy. When it comes to engineering vasculature, there's a few different ways to do it, right? Whether there's 3D bioprinting or natural de novo formation of vasculature so, you know, through stimulation by VEGF and other angiogenic proteins, for example, right? But if you had to pick a favorite approach, an approach that you would want to put your money on in terms of the one that's going to perhaps be the best bet for bringing engineered vasculature to the clinic, what, what approach would you pick? Uh, I, I mean, I think it definitely depends on the, the specific application. Um, but what, what I studied for my PhD mostly was kind of the idea of taking single cells, injecting them into a, a vascular space and, you know, having them generate new vasculature. I think that that approach does have some promises. I think the issue just there is just something that you just mentioned, which is the plasticity and just also being able to control where those cells go. Um, so I think that I, I think that for smaller areas where tissue regeneration is needed, that single cell kind of approach would could work. Um, but then you know you do have some of these larger tissue engineered models, which have shown some promise um, with you know, with grafting and different things like that. So I just want to uh, finish up by circling back on something you start off with what you're, you're setting off on with this idea of a co-emergence, you know, um, every tissue organ it's emerging or it's becoming, I think, clear has their own specific set of vasculature. Uh, and those can be very different and relevant to their function and say the liver or kidney and kind of a filtration type function versus 
in let's say your large vessels where stability is really uh, the primary importance. When, when you start with the co-emergence, what's the, your, your square one? You know, wh wh what's the idea there? Maybe you could elaborate a little bit on, us for, on that for us. Like, is it a, a function of making cells and putting them together? Or I think it's actually more nuanced than that, right? It's that these cells naturally, they emerge together. And so you're trying to recapitulate that. Could you just, you know, drill down on that for a little bit, for, for a little while? Yeah, so in my PhD, going back there, in my PhD, MS, I'm sure you're familiar with, with the EC protocol, you get um, ECs and you also get these stromal cells. And one of the things that we saw was that when we put those cells together in a hydrogel, they have really nice interaction if you don't separate them out. But once you separate them out and culture them kind of long-term separately, you put them back together and you don't get that same type of interaction. Hmm. Um, and so from that kind of this question in my mind was born, you know, what is it? And we, we've done like conditioned media experiments and different things like that. You physically have to have the cells together. Um, and so that question kind of in my mind was, well, what is it about these two cells emerging together that makes the ECs function different? Um, and so continuing into my postdoc work, one of the things I talked about with Todd was, as you mentioned, not just taking two kind of differentiated cell types and putting them together, but understanding is if there's a way that we can take cells from the IPS stage and um, somehow engineer them either through genetic engineering, synthetic biologies, where they maybe some, some of the cells don't respond to certain signals and some of these cells do respond to certain signals and see if we can create a um, system where you have two different cell types or multiple different cell types emerging at the same time. So instead of kind of looking from the outside in with like different biomaterials and tension and growth factors, is there any way we can just kind of innately have this one cell that doesn't respond to this cue and see how those cells differentiate together? So that's kind of what I'm thinking for my postdoc um, and also potentially doing that in 3D as well and seeing how that contributes to it as well. Uh, but th that's kind of where, where I'm going with the kind of co-emergence idea. Bria, I love it for the science, but I also love it as a metaphor and a concept. You know, when you think of scientific trainees as we're focusing on in this episode, I think we should have a little bit more of co-emergence. You know, we get these scientists, we train them, and then we put them together. We should be training all of us together, learning from each other. And I think that synergy will suit not only you know, training a, a, a better generation of scientists, but a lot of innovation just on the ground. Um, while all that co-emergence is happening. So thanks for bringing the idea into the fore. And uh, I hope we can spread that amongst the listeners. And, and thanks really for sharing uh, your research and a little bit about yourself. Dr. Macklin, uh, best of luck in your postdoc. I can't wait to see what you do with it. Thank you so much. Alrighty, folks, our final guest is Dr. Matthew Sinton, a postdoctoral research associate in the lab of Dr. Annette McLeod at the Institute of Biodiversity, Animal Health, and Comparative Medicine at the University of Glasgow. Dr. Sinton's research centers around TH2 immunity and how it's regulated by infection-associated metabolic changes. So Dr. Sinton, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for the invite. Um, it's really, really nice to be asked along and uh, get to take part in this. I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. And so we will dive right into it. For all of our guests, we've been asking them to give us a little bit of 
long-term picture. So down the road, after you're done training and after you grow up, quote unquote, what do you want to be? So what do you want to become down the road? So it's really surprising for me to hear myself say this because I never thought I would get to this point. But ultimately, I, I would actually like to have my own lab at some point. Um, mm -hmm. I think all the way along the road, I've been just looking at the next step and going, maybe I'll go there, maybe. And then I take the next step and go, yeah, maybe the next step. And now I'm, I'm kind of like, yeah, I've got, I've got ideas and I'd like to really start to explore those a little bit more. Um, so yeah, I'm hoping that maybe in the next sort of five to 10 years, I don't know if that's too long, too short, that um, yeah, I could start my own research group. Yep, that's the dream for a lot of folks, myself included. It takes time, you know, but, you know, I think establishing yourself on a great foundation of training is going to be so critical to, to get you there. And so speaking of that training, your work has focused on quite a number of things, you know, in infection-related immunity and infection-related metabolism changes in that area. And your work has also recently focused on modeling human liver diseases using human pluripotent stem cells, stem cell-derived hepatocytes in particular. So as with everything in the stem cell field that we've discussed here on the show, a major issue is often in, uh, immaturity with these cells and stem cell-derived der cells, hepatocytes cardiomyocytes, whatever you work with, they are somewhat immature. And I, I'm assuming that stem cell-derived hepatocytes, are they're no exception, right? So as a resident expert in this field, in the field of hepatocyte biology, how close are these things to the real thing, these stem cell-derived hepatocytes? And when it actually comes to their utility for disease modeling, secreting the proteins that they're supposed to, and so on, how effective are they? Because you've published a couple of papers on this topic, so we'd love to get your perspectives on this. Yeah, I mean, those, those are great questions. And one of the things that we were obviously concerned about when, when we were establishing this model. Um, so yeah, as, as you say, we, like with many stem cell derived models, the cells themselves are still relatively immature, um, which does limit their utility to certain, certain things. So, um, so what I was interested in, in my, during my PhD, was exploring how, uh, how metabolic changes impacted on the epigenome. And so one of the aspects we wanted to know was, well, does the epigenome of these cells represent what you might expect from a human? And somebody who was in the lab before, before I joined looked into this and looked into, the, uh, looked into methylation in adult primary hepatocytes and then compared them to this model and said, actually, the methylation patterns that you see are very similar. So that was, that was kind of one box ticked where you think, okay, this is great for answering this particular question, wonderful. The other thing was phenotyping the cells and making sure that they broadly act in the way that you'd expect them to. So, you know, do they secrete things like albumin, which they do? Um, do they express transcription factors such as HNF4-alpha, which you would expect them to do, and they do. They also display cytochrome activity at levels that are similar to what you would expect from a human hepatocyte, from a primary hepatocyte. So all of those things together, we were like, okay, well, 
yeah, they, they are relatively immature, which is why all the way through we refer to them as hepatocyte-like cells, just to make people, just to highlight to people that they're not exactly hepatocytes, they're a model. And, um, but in terms of their function, their broad function and um, what they do just in the steady state, they, they represent hepatocytes pretty well. Got it. Yeah, it's, I, I think it is a bit of a, a universal concern in the field, but it does sound like they are starting to do the things that they're supposed to do. And I, I know there's a lot of interest, you know, even in my field for using B cells for potentially even drug toxicity screening, mm -hmm. since, you know, drugs are often metabolized in the liver, right? They are metabolized in the liver. And if the same proteins critical for that metabolic process are there, then perhaps they can have a lot of utility in that process as well. So shifting gears a little bit to more recently in your postdoc, you've focused a little bit on immunometabolism, right? It's a, it's a really hot field. And in particular, some of your work has focused on Th2 immunity and how it's actually regulated by different infection-associated metabolic changes. So there's been a lot of interest right now, especially since you know we're in a pandemic, right? A viral pandemic. There's a lot of interest in how different infections and infections by viruses, for example, like SARS-CoV-2, even Zika virus before that, can impact cell metabolism and how maybe even some of these phenotypes could be harnessed or further studied to alleviate some of these infections phenotypes, right? So tell us what you're learning about when it comes to this really cutting edge field at the intersection of infection and metabolism. So broadly, the, the, the past year of, of my work has studied, has focused on studying uh, quite fundamental aspects of, of immune, uh, immunometabolism. So one thing that we're interested in is the germinal centers in the lymph nodes. And what has been observed previously is that within those, within those lymph nodes, as they expand when you have an infection, then you start to get some level of hypoxia and stabilization of transcription factors like HIF1-alpha. Um, so what, what we're really interested in is which cells within the germinal center does that affect? Does it affect the B cells, which make the antibodies does it affect the T cells, which are supporting the B cells or the dendritic cells that are supporting the, the T cells? You know, what, what kind of sequence is happening there? And so the main focus for us is on the T follicular helper cells, which support antibody production by the B cells. So what we are trying to understand is if these T follicular helper cells are subjected to hypoxia, and if you have a stabilization of HIF1-alpha, for example, what effect does that then have? Because HIF1-alpha is a transcription factor. So is it then activating different pathways within the T cells and different metabolic pathways in particular? And how does that affect the quality of the T, T cell response and function? And thereby, how does it affect B cell function and response to infection? So, you know, we've, we've got partway through the story. Um, as I mentioned, um, I'm moving on to a new, a new position um, mm -hmm. next week. So I don't get to complete that part of the story, but I think we're, we're seeing some really interesting um, features. And I think we're starting to see some, some things that haven't necessarily been seen before, um, or at least I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but yeah, so it's it's really cool because we're looking at different infection types as well and seeing if there are commonalities between infection types and how and like I said, how hypoxia affects uh, the quality of the immune response. Got it. So since you brought it up, you want to talk a little bit about your new position and the the new avenues of research that you might be pursuing there. Um, so just between you and me, I'm not allowed to talk too much about it. <laughs> okay. Got it. Got it. Got it. No problem. Um, so but I, I can tell you a bit. So Annette McLeod's lab, they focus on human African trypanosomiasis. So that's the, the parasite that causes sleeping sickness, which is endemic to mm. sub-Saharan Africa. Um, lots of different countries, um, including places like Ghana and Malawi. And what the lab is sort of really interested in is trypanosomes and how they reside in the skin. So a few years ago, they, the lab found that the skin makes a really, it's a major reservoir for colonization by the parasite. And so that seems to be important for transmission of parasite. Um, so that's, that's broadly what the lab is, is looking at. And so I'm, I'm coming in to, to, take, to take up one of the projects and, and get running with it. Got it. Well, I guess we'll stay tuned then. <laughs> Maybe we can have you back on the show in a little bit so you can divulge some more of your secrets. But yeah, we'll stay tuned until then. Uh, that's so that's my sound mysterious. Yeah, very mysterious. <laughs> Alrighty. So the last question we wanted to ask you is a little tangential. It's uh, not directly related to your science, but it's also related to something that you have a lot of passion for. And looking into your background, I learned about a, uh, a program called 500QS, that's 500 Queer Scientists. It's a campaign to promote the visibility of LGBTQ people in STEM and STEM supporting jobs. And notably, the organization might have outgrown the moniker, right? Because there's actually more than 1,500 stories in the campaign, which is pretty amazing. So how did you actually become involved in that? And what is it meant for you in the, the bigger picture? And do you think the STEM fields are due for a change in culture to actually make them more accessible to LGBTQ individuals? Do you think we're, we're doing a good job? And so, so what do you think about that? Um, I, I think, honestly, it's, it's a work in progress. And I think mm. there is a lot of great work going on out there at the moment. Um, so I, I uploaded my profile to 500 Queer Scientists because, partly because I enjoyed being able to see other people similar to me in similar positions and learning about what they were doing. Um, it's actually, it's quite a good way of networking as well. You know, if you see people who are from similar backgrounds, you feel a little bit more able to reach out to them. The, in terms of how the field is moving, I think there, there are still a lot of barriers for the community uh, when it comes to STEM. So I don't know if you saw, but a couple of years ago, I established a group called the STEM Village, mm -hmm. which initially was meant to help increase visibility of LGBTQ plus people in, in STEM in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And then the pandemic happened. Right. So everything went virtual and suddenly we started engaging with lots of other people around the world, which, which was wonderful. Uh, and so we are, we're doing similar work to what a lot of other groups are, are doing, like 500 queer scientists. And yeah, I think, as I say, there are still quite a few barriers, depending on where you're located, which lab you're in, which country you're in, uh, things like 
institutional attitudes towards marginalized communities. And it's not just the LGBTQ plus community, you know, it's lots of different marginalized communities. So yeah, I think there's a lot of work to do there in terms of in terms of normalizing things. Mm -hmm. So for example, one of the discussions that we had last year was around what does a scientist look like? And so we had a panel of scientists who are also uh, drag queens hmm. and one drag king. And that's what they do to as a creative outlet. And sometimes they do it as a science communication tool. And what came out of that was this idea that when you go to a talk or when many people go to a talk, if they are presented with a speaker who, for example, presents as a man, but mm. is stood there wearing a dress and nail varnish. I am certain, I may be wrong, I may be mischaracterizing people, but I'm certain that a large percentage of the audience would be judging that person on what they're wearing rather than on the science that they're presenting. Mm -hmm. And that's such a shame because that means that that person may feel unable to dress as they want, to present however they feel most comfortable because they won't be taken as seriously. And so as one of the initiatives that we've started is a series of uh, seminar talks where the speakers are exclusively LGBTQ+. So hmm. the, the main series was an immunology series. So they're all immunologists, but it's open to the broader immunology community so that people can participate. And we say this is to provide a platform for visibility and, and to challenge some of that um, sort of heteronormativity within the field and just say, if people are happy and they're able to express themselves, then that's, that's A, that's perfect. That's how mm -hmm. everybody should be. And B, that's nobody else's business. Mm -hmm. And just focus on what the talk is about and enjoy the science for the science. I love that. No, that's that's so fantastic. Uh, I applaud you for that initiative as well. I think I wanted to emphasize one point that you made, which is the power of visibility. I'm actually very fortunate to be living in an area of the country, in the area of the world, in West Hollywood in LA, where we have a very prominent LGBTQ community. And that actually very prominently spills over into the academic institutions that we have here. In fact, a number of the scientists at the current institution that I'm at are very proudly LGBTQ. And I think it's it's powerful that there's institutional support for that. You know, I think, like you said, it's it's variable across the world in terms of how institutions are actually able to support these marginalized communities. But I think through these initiatives and actually showing the scientific community that, yes, we have a very strong presence in the LGBTQ community in science, I think that's that's exceptionally powerful. And it's going to really help to alleviate some of these issues when it comes to representation in our field. So I applaud you again for the work that you're doing, Dr. Sinton. And thank you again so much for joining us here on the show, talking a little bit about your initiatives, your science, your training. Training, and we'll love to have you on the show down in, in the future, like what we talked about, just so you can talk a little bit more about that secretive project that you're talking about, right? <laughs> so hopefully down the road, we can have you here again. Oh, thank you so much. It's been really fun. And I really appreciate the invite.
All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. A special chat with three postdocs. Wow, they are the future, and I can't wait to see what they get up to. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or via email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Join us again in a couple of weeks.